information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. Okay, before we roll over to a conversation with the restoration industry's global watchdog, we're calling an insider's view from the underbelly to the top of the mountain. Make sure you check out the new IAQ radio website. We've got the search box now. It's great. You can put in a name of a, a topic or a guest, and it pulls it right up for you. All of Cliff's blogs are on there. We've added some graphics. It's a great. Uh, we're real happy to have the new site up and running. Also want to make sure before we uh, go, last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at, iaqtraining.com, and check out the Healthy Buildings 2015 conference coming up at the end of September, beginning of October. All right, let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Quest. Thanks, Joe. Hello, everybody. Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, text in your answer. Congratulations! John Lapotere, Indoor Air Quality Solutions, Orlando, Florida, for the first correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, July 17, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Now for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. What are the first four words 
in the opening scene of the movie Godfather 1. Back to you, Joe. All right. Pete Consigli is with us here today. We're all back at Studio C on the round table. He is the Restoration Industry. He is a Restoration Industry Association certified restore and water loss specialist. And he's been a member of the Restoration Industry Association, formerly ASCR, since 1977. Over the years, He's been an active volunteer and filled various association leadership roles. In 2008, Pete received the RIA's most prestigious honor for excellence in restoration, the Martin L. King Award. In 2012, RIA made Pete an honorary member to its association. In 2015, the Indoor Air Quality Association President Kent Rawhauser inducted Pete into the IAQA Hall of Fame for his involvement in the legendary Westford Building Science Symposium, a.k.a. Summer Camp. Pete represents the RIA in support of Purdue University's Disaster Restoration and Reconstruction Management Program in his current dual role of RIA Education Director and Industry Advisor. He directs all aspects of RIA's education program, technical, and managerial training. Pete supports RIA members to fulfill their motto, we make it better, we promise. We've got some music for Pete. Great to have you with us on IAQ Radio. We're going back in time a little bit. I want to start with where where did Pete come from? Where did Pete Consigli come from? Well, Joe Cliff, great to be here, and um, we're glad to have you. Yeah, it's good. thank you. I uh, actually, but before I kind of say where I came from, I uh, I kind of want to say you know that this uh, any of you uh, any of the listeners out there that are sports fans realize that uh, for about probably about the last month, uh, ESPN has been playing. Uh, a lot of clips from the very famous Jimmy V uh, uh, speech after the, you know, uh, before he passed away several several years ago, and they have the ESPY Awards every year. And there's a one clip in particular which, uh, to me, is uh, kind of what I think the show's going to be about today. Jimmy V says that every person should do three things every day. He says they should laugh, they should think, and they should have their emotions uh, move to tears. He says if you laugh, you think, and you cry every day, so that's a full day. So... Anyway, uh, that's what I kind of see us uh, doing today. Looking forward to it, Pete. Yeah. So where did, where did the, 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 the watchdog come from? Well, well actually, the Consigli. Yeah, well, you know, part. I mean, so, you know, my, my name is Consigli, but the, the root foundation of my name is Consiglieri. And actually, if you did a spell check, you know, in the, in the Yahoo, uh, an Italian spell check in Yahoo, it, and you just spell my name, Consigli with an ERE in the end, it actually comes up as the proper name. And that, you know, in the Sicilian vernacular, a consigliere is an advisor to the family. And um, so, I don't know, maybe it was in my DNA to, uh, you know, to this stage of my career to be a consultant and advisor to, to the industry and to clients and people. And, uh, you know, it's a real honor and a privilege. I, um, 
so you have to put it into context. Um, where did I come from? So I was, you know, a child of the 60s, a baby boomer, just like Cliff, Joe, like you guys. And um, in, uh, in 1972, um, I, uh, uh, I, uh, I took a trip around, you know, around Europe. I traveled to to parts of North Africa, and then I kind of I came, you know, I came back back home, and I had to decide what I wanted to do when I when I was going to grow up. I was 21 years old, and um, you know, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Uh, my my mother's side of the family is Sicilian, and uh, my father's side is Italian. <laughs> Uh, there, there is a difference, and, uh, <laughs> and um, it, it, that part of the family came from Parma. That's where they make prosciutto. And so, um, my family at the time had bought a uh, had bought a condominium up in Stamford, Connecticut, and was going to kind of be a retirement area when Stamford was a little town. And I went up there, and um, I was kind of living up there. And I answered an ad in the local newspaper, and it wound up being Electrolux. And Electrolux, you know, came from Old Greenwich, Connecticut. The name was very well known. And uh, next thing you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm selling Electrolux door to door to a bunch of old timers, and um, and I, I met this guy. Uh, there were a lot of uh, laid off uh, guys in the area who were engineers and stuff like that, and they were all out selling Electrolux in the early 70s. And as we're knocking on doors, and you try to go sell a vacuum cleaner and a full package, which included the, the rug shampoo. So what happens is we have to demonstrate. It's kind of like the old Apple Costello movies with the vacuum, and you know they dump all the dirt on there, and then there's no there's no there's no plug in there, you know, electricity, right? So what happens is we're cleaning the rugs, and the customer starts saying, you know, we're not really interested in the vacuum, but how much would you charge to clean the rug? So we quickly realized we could probably do better cleaning the rugs than we could trying to sell the vacuum. Right. So the next thing you know, we're, we're shampooing and cleaning some rugs. Anyway, the short, you know, to, to shorten the story, what happened is I, me and this fellow named Rudy, we wind up, um, uh, uh, we got into the business. We got into janitorial services, carpet cleaning, you know, that ultimately led to, some of the, the counts that we were doing, both in the residential and the commercial markets, had some flooding, and we were wet back in the water, not really knowing what to do, throwing some fans in there, and that, those were the early stages of, uh, of really how I... The I suck got, and hope days, man. Yeah, and that, that's, <laughs> that's basically how I, I got into the industry, and then that kind of became my life. That was the beginning of the journey. Okay. And then, uh, as I understand it, you and Cliff, the Z-Man, first met, like, in the late 70s. And then, you know... You got a Sicilian kid from Brooklyn, a Jewish boy from the Steel City. You know, tell us a little bit about the beginning of that relationship. Yeah. Well, anyway, you know, it's funny with the Godfather. You know, the early roots of the Godfather really go back to to two Jewish boys and uh, two Italian Sicilian boys, and that was uh, Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky, um, Bugsy Siegel, Benny, and uh, and Frank Costello, and they were in the Lower East Side of New York. They were immigrants, and uh, they were being picked on. And uh, those were kind of the roots in the early days. And so, I don't know, maybe there's some kind, there's some kind of, there's probably something in the bloodline between where the, the Jews and the Sicilians, you know, were such good friends in business and in life. But what happened was, is, um, so, okay, so I'm in the cleaning business now in the 70s, right? And things are moving up pretty good. And me and this fellow, Rudy, we got a little office in downtown Stanford, and we're starting to get to be known in the area. We used to do a lot of high-end uh, residential cleaning. He went to the commercial route, and then I wound up picking up a very important commercial account early in my career. It was a the big law firm in Connecticut that shared a building with a bank. And the bank, they had, they had mandatory janitorial services, but the, the janitorial service was awful. I mean, just terrible. So they actually hired me as a supplemental guy to come in and clean up after the janitors. And, I, and it took me about a month to get the building in shape. Well, anyway, at one particular point now, a few years in the business, we're building a little bit of a rep, and I decide 
that I'm going to go get some really new fancy uh, carpet cleaning machine. And I, got, I had to go take a $5,000 loan out from the bank, and I got some really big fancy systems. So now what I want to do is, is I want to try to see if I can sell this, uh, this law firm who, who has a lot of confidence in me that I want to get the carpet cleaning contract. And a little bit I know back in the day, there's a big difference between doing janitorial work and just buying fabric and textile cleaning. So what happened is I go in there, and the guy was very polite to me. They really loved me. He said, you know, Pete, we're real happy, but we have a guy, you know, we're pretty happy with this guy, and it's been going on, you know, pretty good. So I said, that was it. So I, I started uh, uh, moving into the carpet cleaning and doing a bunch of work. Well, one day, a Saturday, I'm in the building. I used to do this work in the weekends right after the normal janitors weren't there, and I'd clean up on him. I run into this guy in the elevator, and he's kind of an old, crusty kind of looking guy, and he looks at me, and he goes, so you're the kid who tried to take my carpet cleaning account. And I go, who are you? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. He goes, he says, I'm, I'm a carpet cleaning guy, right? Anyway, his name was Bill Densky. He was a fireman, ex-fireman. A lot of firemen got into this business many, many years as, you know, second jobs, cleaning, restoration. And um, we got to be friends. He liked me, took me under his wing. And I said, uh, I said so what's the next, you know, how, what, what's the next thing? What should I do? You know, so he kind of showed me, the, explained kind of the mystique of it and why janitorial and window washing was different than carpet upholstery cleaning the high end. Anyway, so he said to me, look, there are organizations you can go find if you want to advance yourself. So I'm in the business about five years now. This was like 76, 77. So he said, there's two of them. He said, one of them was called AIDS, A-I-D-S, AIDS International. And that was the second name of RAA. They started out as National Institute of Rug Cleaners in the 40s. Then they changed the Association of Interior Decor Specialists in 1980 for the obvious reasons. They rebranded to ASVR. And then in 2007, we rebranded to RA. So it's almost 70 years we've had four names. But the other organization, he said, was called SCT, Society of Cleaning Technicians. And, of course, they've been rebranded to Society of Cleaning Technicians, the International Society of Cleaning Technicians, and then now today they're known as the Society of uh, Cleaning and Restoration Technicians. So what happened is then this is how I met this fellow named Ed York. And um, so I actually uh, I went to a, 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 an SCT convention and was a member and um, and I kind of saw the grassroots part of the industry. And then in 1977, I went to my first uh, AS, AIDS convention, ASCRIA convention, and it was in Val, the Bell Harbor, Sheridan Bell Harbor in, uh, in, in Miami. And this is when I first met Cliff. And actually, the very, very first uh, table that I ever sat at as part of a group lunch was with, uh, with Buzz Dohanian, but the Buzz Sr., I mean, the dad. The Buzz Jr. is one of our past presidents, and him and Ellen Amerson. The Armin, they're, they're both Armin. Armin. Yeah, they're both Armin. And, uh, and that was kind of how I was indoctrinated into the industry. And uh, anyway, I met Cliff in the trade, trade hall. And you yeah. Had to, yeah. Incidentally, that was the first uh, RA that we had ever attended right. at. So he had, he had, he had, he had this, this pet skunk named Petunia, and they took the glands out, and he was, you know, he was promoting his, his products. And, uh, you know, uh, they were, they, they, he had the smoke deodorization. It was, uh, you know, pet odor control kind of products. And that kind of stuff. And anyway, we kind of hit it off, and I started looking at some of his products. And then over the next couple of years, um, there were some regional associations. Me coming from the Northeast, I belonged to two regional associations. One was the New York Red Cleaners, and then the other one was the New England, the NEIRC. And, and there were deep roots in both of those organizations with the, the ASCRREA over the years. Both still around, right? Both, both they're all, of course, they're all around. They're all shareholders of the IACRC. But right. those are my roots. I belong to all these associations at one time in my career because they were the regional groups and I was in the business. I yeah. see. All right. And what about the, the I've got to note, the early years of the innovators. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Yeah. So this, this is really something. And, you know, 
So what happened is right around that time in the mid to late 70s, the way that guys in the industry really started to learn and network was is that they, they, they were, it was done by the suppliers. So there were, there, the famous and the most early suppliers in the industry were, were Hydromaster, ProChem, um, ChemSpec, uh, Unsmoke, um, CleanRight, and, uh, and, and, and Lloyd's. These were the these were the, the these were the original innovators. These were the first guys, and every one of those have legendary owners. Mike Palmer, uh, Bob Langley was a legendary sales guy for Hydromaster. Jim Roden and uh, and um, you know and the Roden family and Joe Do- Joe Doman uh, Doman I said pronounce Joe Doman Joe Doman from ProCam, and then um, Murray Kramer and the CleanRight guys and Arlen Knight you know was one of those guys. These were all the, the pioneers. Lloyd Weaver and his son Lance. And what happened is, uh, and, and of course, uh, Cliff, you know, and his brother Arnold, and they would put on um, classes around the country, which were the early classes. And during that time, they actually had a show called The Innovators, and they went around and they put shows on. And this is what people want in the day. There was, you know, there was no IICRC yet. There was no formal training or anything. People just, they wanted these supply shows. They said, okay, we know you want to sell us some stuff, but give us good information. And they were. They were educational deals. There was always business marketing done with the technical and this is how the industry grew. These were the early, early roots, and those really are all the points, the key pioneers in the cleaning area and the restoration area, those companies that I named. Those were the ones, those were the ones then. There may be some others that were left somewhere out, but those are the main ones. And I, I think what it led to, though, is that um, at, at this event, um, you know, we would rent an exhibit hall. Each of us would have an exhibit. Each of us would do a presentation that was very geared towards education. We weren't up there selling, we were there educating. And we were trying to raise the interest uh, of the attendees because the first industry first training classes followed immediately thereafter. So what we would do is um, if people were interested in you know what we had to say, a lot of times they would stay over for a one day class and that might be water restoration, odor removal, uh, spotting, upholstery cleaning, uh, you know, uh, they would be like immediately, that could be like the second day of the class. So these these groups uh, primarily started as cleaning groups, but now they're all involved in, in restoration to some degree, too. I mean, as far as the, the Hydromaster and the ProCams and all that. Yeah, I mean, they, to, to a certain degree they are. I mean, you know, some of them just do equipment. Some of them do the chemical product line. They all, to some degree, are involved in training. The original training was just how to use our products and systems, and then eventually now it's kind of come to industry standardization and the certification classes, et cetera. You know, and of course the classes have to be more generic and you have to mention multiple names. But at the end of the day, even today, I actually believe that guys want names of stuff. They, they sure. don't, don't tell me non-volatile. What, what product do I need to buy? You know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I, 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 don't, I think what they want to know is what product does the instructor use. And I think a lot of times that cuts right to the chase because if, if they believe in the instructor, and I'll tell you, as an instructor, the last thing you want to do in hands-on training is use a product that doesn't work. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing, more, yeah, not like killing the class. Right? There's nothing more embarrassing than, you know, it's like you're the magician getting ready to pull the, the rabbit out of the hat, and all of a sudden there is no rabbit in there. Yeah. So, you know, I think, you know, confident-wise, you want to know. All right. Well, let's let's go to the next topic here. Pete goes west. What what is that, what exactly do we mean by Pete goes west? All right. So this is what happened in the seventies. You know, when I got into the business as a Stanford, Connecticut, I served you know very uh, high income you know area. Um, 
in the in the mid in the in the late seventies, I um, I kind of had a little bit of a dalliance, and I worked for a, a, a very large, recognized uh, the primary rug carpet cleaner uh, in in Stanford, Connecticut. It was called Schaefer, and William Schaefer was one of the first presidents of the old National Institute of Rug Cleaners. So two years in a row in the in the forties. Now that's owned by a fellow named Steve DeMarco, Triple S, but they were competitors in the day. Eventually they kind of bought, but they were the most uh, famous in the, the whole area. And we used to go down to, we used to go down to Westchester County, which is in the New York area. One of our accounts for years was the Westchester Country Club where they play the U.S. Open, you know, and, and then we got, I got to meet and understand who executive housekeepers were and a lot of the buildings in New York City and the high maintenance hotels like the Trump properties and the, and the, and the Harley that was owned by, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Leanna Holmesley and people like that. We used, we used to do a lot of business like that back in the day in the New York market and uh, in, in, in Southeast Connecticut. And um, so during that time, I worked there for about a year, and I, I really made my bones in understanding all the different differences in the on-location cleaning processes for carpet upholstery rugs, implant rug cleaning, orientals. You know, that was a lot of background. Well, and, uh, and then I met my, my fellow Bill Bensky, and I got to the associations. Well, at that time, I was uh, I had a girlfriend there, was pretty close. She was uh, she's the one who always says my husband's uh, Sicilian, he's not Italian, and and, and uh, anyway, she's Napolitan, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> that's in Naples. That's where pizza was invented. That's where the most beautiful Italian women come from: Sophia Loren, Ginola Bridge, all that. And uh, anyway, so what happened was is um, she wanted to move. Her sister had moved out to California a, a couple of years earlier, and there was some reason that. Don't need to talk about it on the show, but I, we decided to move and go west. We were going to move to San Francisco. Now, in the 70s, I had been out to California, traveled around the country, did some stuff like that, but I hadn't really never been up to the Bay Area. It's a place that was really interesting to me. You know, there was an analogy in the 60s between Greenwich Village in New York and uh, Haight Asbury in San Francisco. So, what happened is I researched the area, and at the time, SCT and Ed York had a thing called the Associates Program, which was actually in um, their technical binders when you remember. And there were three parts of the associate. One of them was the concept. The second one was the procurement company, the guys who got the work, and the third was the production company, the people who did the work. So I thought I could be a good production company. I had all my clean right stuff. I had my, my Lloyd's Porter dryers. I had my unsmoked thermogen. You know, I had my Hydromaster truck mount. I had all that kind of stuff, and I wanted to go. So I, 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 I called Ed York, and I said, Ed, I'm, I'm looking to go to San Francisco area. Can you give me the name of three or four guys out there who might be interested in, in hiring me as a production guy, and they would need that? So I, I interviewed a bunch of companies, and I settled with one with a company in, in Fremont, California, a guy named Don Larson. And he had a company called Warwalk. Warwalk stood for Larson and Walker. And he was an ex-cop uh, that had disability, and he wanted to get into the restoration business. And what he did is he ran the business, like, with the 10 code, with Motorola radios, you know, 10-4, 10-8, 10-7, you know, all this. Uh, what's your 10-20, you know? And, um, and he had uh, flasher lights and partnered it with the local uh, uh, fire department. Well, what happened is Ed York had heard about this guy through some other people and he was developing the original model for DKI. And what happened is they came down and Don Larson's MO, how he operated with colored hard hats, was the beginning of finishing the model for DKI that led to the DKI. And I was early then, we used to call him um, uh, restor not, uh, uh, project manager, was like RCO, Restoration Control Officer, was the tagline name mm -hmm. back in the day. And so what happened is I, I made a deal with him, I handled all his cleaning mm -hmm. aspects under the restoration company, Learn Restoration. I had known some restoration, but he was kind of more of a grassroots with SET, and I brought kind of the ASCR model out there, and this was kind of the beginning of me going from the East Coast to the West Coast and the merging, and I mean, you know, I, I lived out in the Bay Area for 20 years, 
And, uh, you know, I had a four-year stint when I went to go work for Dry East. We'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. But I was out there for 20 years before I kind of moved back east, you know, and then hmm. kind of my, 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 my history has evolved in the industry. So I went west, and uh, I had a New York boy several years, and I'm living on the west coast. Okay. And then during this period, um, there was the rise of the associations, or, or immediately, well, during that 20-year period, starting in the yeah. 80s. So this is yeah this this is what I call the rise of the association. So what happened is you have you had all these regional associations, you know, back in the day in the West Coast. And so then then while I'm in California, now I'm a member of what was called the CCI then the Carpet Cleaners. Now it's called CFI, and they rebranded, and they had a very close relationship with the CCI and W guys. So I was a member of that association. I was actually a board member. I was a, I was a director for what was called the Central Coast chapter, you know, um, in the in the Bay Area, and um, and. Uh, and now, you know, throughout those years, there was always a battle in the carpet cleaning area between the perceived bait and switch type of guys and between the, you know, the old style, you know, guys and charged by the square foot kind of guys. And now restoration was starting to kind of evolve and become more of a, 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 of a industry mainstream. You know, uh, Dry started in, uh, you know, 1981, Claude Blackburn's basement with two products. He, he had these, these foam the easy block. blocks, the easy blocks was the first okay. one. He did a yeah. national mailing. And then, um, you know, he started with a rotor mold. He took the Lloyd's, you know, from the metal porta dryers to the rotor mold. And well, I think he had fiberglass first. Oh, well, that's right. He did have fiberglass. I forgot about that. And then he moved to the rotor mold and he kind of, you know, set up. And that's, you know, you know, Cord was, a, I guess he went to a Lloyd seminar one time in the Northwest and he loved the idea. He was a carpet cleaner and he, you know, he started doing some water work and, you know, one thing led to another. So it's kind of interesting, you know, the way it's evolved. So, you know, during that time, the associations really started to grow. Now, I, I think one thing that's important is that people that wanted to learn, that was really the only place that you would learn. They were very involved in training, and typically you know, they would have seminars, they would have the convention, and it was really all about primarily technical training. Yeah. I mean, that's what the, the associations provided two things. They provided education and training, and they provided venues and vehicles for networking. Now, let me yeah. clear, when you say the associations, do you mean the regional associations? I mean all of them. All of them, right. including the RIA? Yeah, all of them. At that time, all RIA, SCT, all of them. They, they, okay. It was the beginning of the rising, and then what was happening is there were these regional associations, and many of them, who a lot of the people had roots back to the national group, sometimes one or other or both, you know, I mean a lot. And it was now the industry was starting to grow. And and uh, but the, but but one of the issues that later led to things and you progressed it. They all want to have their own shows, and there were too many shows to go to and too much overlap. And then it was difficult. The suppliers couldn't support them all. They had to choose. Uh, even the even the cleaners and restore. I mean, how many things do you need to go to? How often can you be away from your business? I mean, you want to learn and network, but you still also have to run your business. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, but, you know, yeah. I think, I think a lot of it was cost driven too, Joe. You know, if you were smaller. You would kind of, you know, smaller ships stick, you know, stuck closer to shore. You would, the, the dues were lower. Uh, it was less expensive to, you know, to go to Seven Springs or, right. or, or whatever than it was to, you know, travel on a national basis because travel was, you know, was expensive back then. And uh, when you say there, there were a lot of shows, can you compare that to today? Yeah, well, no, you can't even compare it today. What happened is every one of those regional organizations had, had a show, had a convention, a two-day convention. Eventually, in the probably somewhere in the 90s, that's what led to the whole idea and the concept of connections, okay? And connections at the time started with four West Coast regional and then kind of expanded, and then, you know, it's evolved. 
So, so it, what it was was is that the the industry had to kind of come together to to make it easier for the suppliers, for the attendees, you know, for speakers, things of that nature. That you just couldn't have all this overlapping. People are just not going to spend their whole life on the road going. You know, it was just difficult. So that okay. that was kind of the beginning of that. All right. All right. What about let's let's go into the microband story with yeah. the microband story with the left coast bureaucrat. Yeah. What's that mean? Uh, so here's here's a little funny story that we'll tell here, and you know we've got a couple of them in there. So look, so this is what happened. So I'm out of I'm out of I'm out of the West Coast, right? And I bring all of my stuff out there that I've been using from the East Coast, which Hydromaster, and I got my Chemspec stuff, I got Unsmoke, I got uh, you know I got the, uh, the Lloyd stuff, eventually some dry stuff, but one of the things in particular was, was microband. So microband was a, a very neat product that had a much stronger East Coast input than it did in the West Coast. And, you know, later over the years, there were uh, EPA and there were registration issues, and there were certain things that Cliff had to do to make uh, uh, microband at the time when he owned that to be used in, in both uh, California and in Canada also. So, uh, so what happened was is um, I'm in the office one day. Well, well, there was a supplier out there, and... I had more stuff of some of the products that I wanted in my supply room than he had in the store, and I pretty much told him, I said, look, <laughs> I said, if you're not going to stock it, I said, I'm not going to buy it from you because I can get, a, a, you know, like a volume retail discount, and I'm just going to, you know, uh, do it myself because I said, if you want me to buy from you, you have to stock the products. And so I actually, he actually started stocking products and new products he was unaware of and integrated with the products that he already had. So I got a bunch of microband stuff that I had been buying for years from Cliff, you know, whatever the retail disc volume discount was. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is I had several five-gallon jugs out of my place. So one day some guy shows up in my office, and the guy, I mean, he was like a cartoon character. He was right out of Central Casting, this guy. The guy has a white hard hat. He has a little string tie, and he's a big, boisterous guy with a with – a, um, with like a pocket protector, right? <laughs> and he has a clipboard. He walks in, and they, anyway, they find him to me. And he's doing some site inspection because of the, the pesticide overlap, and, they're, and now they're looking at the microband, and, they, and that's where the bureaucrats are sticking their nose in. So now he wants to quarantine all my products, and he says that the products are being used illegally, and you have that special licensing and all this kind of stuff. And I'm thinking, this is what I'm first hearing what FIFRA's about and all this. So what happens is he now wants to talk to the guy who owns that product and all this. So what happens is I call Cliff and I get him, and now I have him on speakerphone in my office. So Cliff's trying to explain stuff to him, and the guy's not listening, and the guy keeps going. He's going, but kind sir, kind sir. He's calling Cliff, kind sir. Yeah. Anyway, the bottom line was I had to put, I had to put security tape. I couldn't use the, I couldn't use the product. So Cliff, Cliff gave me a rebate back on the product. The product had to stay there. And I couldn't use it. And we couldn't use microband. And I'm figuring out, well, what do I do now? You know? <laughs> anyway, I can't remember how it eventually was fixed and what eventually happened. Eventually it was fixed. Eventually we had to get rid of that product. He had to rebrand with a new product. And then he, he gave me some new product. And then we're back on target, you know, doing what we had to do. Wow. This is the California. Oh, man, it was unbelievable. I learned then that California is all about legislation and litigation. <laughs> and quite frankly, I don't think that's changed. That's what we call it, the left coast versus the right coast. Amen. Amen to that. Now, what's, what's the 750? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I heard it. The, 750. No, the 750. The 750 was the 707. What year was that, 750? That was the mid-80s. So, so one of the things that Claude's doing is he's trying to build dries in the early days is he decides that he realizes that essentially the air movers and the, the, the desiccant technology to do serious drying. 
So what happens is he sources the, the uh, desiccants and he comes, he gets this. Uh, at the time, all the mother stuff was uh, was the old technology that had um, that was um, uh, um, uh, lithium chloride, and it was uh, much more volatile. It, ha it had a lot of power requirements due to reactivation. There was old technology at the time that was called an old concentric drum technology. And what happened is some of that technology at the time, it, it didn't separate clearly the, uh, the, the, the desiccant and the reactivation area, you know, where the airflow was coming through. Mm -hmm. So what happened is he found some technology that was patented that he thought was better technology and um, with the silica gel wheels. And he essentially uh, got a 750 uh, uh, CFM unit. At the time, the most common ones were the 600 CFM multi-units. They were the fleet, you know, in the country to dry in commercial buildings. He mounted it in a horse trailer. He called it the 750. Well, Cliff, you know, Cliff talked about it as being one of the greatest marketing tools the industry ever saw, you know. So this was the beginning of desiccant technology where we are today. It's not just by accident that people show up and we got these and trailers. It was like $30,000. It was about 30, it was between 25 and 30, if I can remember. You got some attachments with it. You got some training. And at the time, when I worked for Dryas for several years, I actually headed up the 750 network, and I helped network a lot of the desiccant drying guys back in the day to that got into the commercial drying. And then much of that work started uh, some of the methodology for pricing and how we established the scope started in the Bay Area as me as a contractor with my buddy Butch from uh, Ideal, uh, his his. Now his daughter Jacqueline basically uh, okay. runs the business, okay. right? She's, she's, on, she's on the board. She's second generation, uh, you know, uh, restoration uh, company. And um, we started working together and uh, competing in the marketplace doing jobs. And that was, uh, anyway, so that's the 750. It was interesting. The, yeah, seven, the 750 was the ultimate example of putting all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> <laughs> it was $30,000 yeah. and you can only be in one place. But I'll tell you a funny story. When Claude was actually testing that unit out, there was some flooding up in a place called Camino Island, uh, uh, not too far from where Dries is up in the northwest. And there was this house that was flooded. The lady didn't have any insurance. They wanted to try it out. With At the time, and there was a guy named John Watson who was running this carpet cleaning business because he was dedicated to Dries. So what he did was there was an old lady that was in here. This is a true story. And, and listeners, I'm not embellishing this. What happened is... Um, he goes down there, and they want to dry the entire house by putting it under this desiccated negative pressure. The lady is in the house. She's like wheelchair-bound. She couldn't get out of the house. So it took about three days to dry the place out fairly good, and that's not where the three-day drying came from, trust me. But what happened was they two, Claude goes down there to the house to check on it, and he's telling the story. He used to tell the story in some of the train classes. He said, well, how's everything going? I'm the owner of the couple. Everything's going really good. And um, your men are treating me very nice, blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, I just want to, you know, he walked around, looked, he was getting ready to go. He's almost out the door, and the lady says, you know, there's one thing. <laughs> and he goes, what's that? And he goes, I haven't had to go to the bathroom in almost three days. following with their rules. We were serious about their rules. We had to use two or three names and all that in those days. 
And there were some instructors, some very great instructors. Let Joey pick up one of these terrific instructors. I told Joey one time, Joey would just say with the, with the, with the actual uh, generic names. And I said, Joey, it's all good to do that, but the guys are confused because they don't know what product. I said, you know, and all that. So me and Joey used to have those conversations. Well, anyway, and so now I'm working for Dry Ease, and they have the Milgo product, right? So what happens is, um, and I was a microband user, but I also use Milgo in two, because they're two different products. So one day I'm thinking, they're asking me, they want to know which do you use and what's the difference. And I don't know how to answer that without, number one, violating the fact I work with dry ease. Number two, violating the ISU. I don't know what to say. Cliff gave me the answer. And I told Claude this, and Claude says, yeah, that's a good answer, too. He says, anytime anyone says they want to know the difference between Google microband, he says, one works and the other doesn't. <laughs> so so, so that, that's up to the guy in the audience. You know, so I said, in the way that I used to do it, I said, look, I'm not going to get up here, and we're not, gonna, we're not here to talk about that. We're going to talk about the properties of different products, what they are effective at. They said, you want to know more about it? I said, this class is hosted by a supplier, John Lundridge Point, whoever they were. I said, go talk to them. Talk to their technical stuff. That's how we stayed out of it. Yeah. And to this day, you know, people got a kick out of it, and that was it. Well, you know, my, primary, my, my only issue with it is that uh, at that time, the microband product was EPA registered. And what Drys had done is if I'm not mistaken, they went to ProChem. ProChem put the deodorizer. That was the second Mac Milgo product. The first one with the quad, that was the one, that was no, the no, Milgo SR, wasn't no, it? With no, the, no, 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 no. Okay. The first one, first was, one? Okay. first one was the, yeah. Okay. The first one was the glutaraldehyde product. No, no, it was the other way around, trust me. Uh, That's the Milgo SR with the glutaraldehyde. The very first one was the quad. The Milgo always was the quad. Okay. You can trust me. All right, All right. so okay. in any event, my, my, my primary issue was more with the, uh, it's more the glutaraldehyde. It was the second time. Yeah, because what had happened was what, what they did is glutaraldehyde, the, the companies that made it didn't want it to spray on carpet because it's a severe irritant and it caused a lot of issues uh, in, in health care because they used it as a sterile. And the way they had marketed it killed, but there was only a little bit of glutaraldehyde in the product. So, uh, it was like way over the edge, and, and I, I had ethical issues. You don't even see it anymore. I don't, no, I don't think. Well, at the time the product was developed, because when we went to the uh, to the stain resistant carpet, the, the quads basically affected their uh, the coatings, and it, it uh, compromised the warranty. So a new product line came out. And anyway, that was that's really important cool. stuff for yeah. people. Yeah. All right. You take the CR, the Certified Restore, together. Mm -hmm. um, Not on purpose. Not on purpose. <laughs> it happened, right? And, and what year are we looking at here? It was 1988. So let me tell you what the difference right. is that. Marty started the CR program in, in 1980. He started developing in the late 80s. You know, he basically in 1971 is when he came to the NERC, or I guess it was AIDS at the time before it was ASCR. He had uh, 40 restorers and, um, you know, uh, restoration guys, and they came under that umbrella, and that's how the division started, the restoration division of RAA. So then they decided that they wanted to develop some kind of certification to uh, distinguish, you know, the, the, the more for quality and experience restorers with a certified restorer program. So what happened is he, they were putting that program on until 1985. And Marty actually took a three-year sabbatical, and you could only take the CR program at the time, like home study. I think there were two guys. One guy I remember who took it was a guy named the past president from uh, Oregon, but only two guys took it because people didn't want to when go home. When did Reed take it? Uh, Reed Dow, uh, he was one of the very first class. You know, he's he's the, uh, Jimmy Barrett, uh, uh, Major Long, Reed Dow, these were all the first three. Gotcha. The CR number one, two, three, four. Well, Marty was one, obviously. 
So what happened was, is um, they, uh, uh, in 1988, Marty's coming back from the, the bad. For that three-year period, Major Long was actually a technical association. Marty comes back and the class fills up. They only are allowed to support people in the class. So they had people that wanted to come. A month later, they were in a second class with about 10 or 15 people. with was kind of the overflow. So me and Cliff just happened to be in the same class. Before, there were, one was Dan Jones, uh, Jones and Sons. And Cliff's brother, brother Scott now, I think, is effectively kind of probably running the match in the company. Uh, another, Ray Jones, are not related, yeah, not really right, who recently passed away last year. Very unfortunately, he... Uh, but he was he was the very first company that I believe when the predecessor to Belfort Intercon started to look to expand and grow, they bought his company far that's a Pittsburgh and he stayed off company here. I actually think his wife is actually still working with them here at the Belfort location in, in the area. And he he was there and anyway, there's a legendary guy in the association named Phil McLaughlin, who's uh, since passed they yeah, had him on the show. Yeah, had him on the show. And then we had uh, we had uh, uh, Steve and Tim DeBuren were in there. Everybody knows the Steve mm-hmm. and John Dunn strategies. Yeah. And we had um, we had uh, we had uh, Denny Jensen, who was one of the you know one of the primary shareholders of, of uh, DKI. His uh, brother-in-law uh, Keith, Keith Bird, Bird and one of their partners at the time we were in the class. I mean, it was it was a real high-end class. A lot of guys. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. We had um, you know we had it, it was hell week back in those days. And I remember Big Phil was up there, and um, you know he kind of had a reputation for having a good time, and but he knew a lot of stuff, and he was really studying real hard. At one point, Marty said to him, he said, "Phil, you know," he says, uh, "you know, at the end of the week, after that kind of a serious test there, and he kind of kind of put it all in context." But it was it was it was a fun week. You worked together, and what that really started it started the relationship that people had when they went through that designation together, that they carried those relations on for life. I mean, it'd be no different than guys going to law school together, medical school, graduating. And, they'd and like, I don't even know if we picked the groups. They may be even assigned the groups, because I don't know how we got, it was, it was, uh, and they, I and Ray Jones. Right, and, what they used to do is, used, like, Marty used to put the numbers in a hat and we'd pick them out, right. and then we used to have to do little presentations on a topic and you'd pick it out of a hat and you had to prepare and get the topic or something that like that. was like your study group. So yeah. Okay. So, Conversation with Cliff Zlotnick, uh, I guess it's Claude Blackburn, Blackburn, Pete Consiglia. Is that Gary Loibin? All right. What's, what's up with that? Uh, so this is this is this is great. So what ha- this is what happened. So there used to be the show. Probably after the old ASDR show, which is the biggest in the industry, the next biggest show in the industry was actually a regional show in the Midwest called Maps. What does that stand for, Cliff? Uh, the Mid- Midwest Association of Professionals. Right. right. And so what happened is, and, and John not a big support. And the working guys. I mean, there was there was some. It was I don't. So Will Gage and the Duracling guys. Right. The two of those right. guys, I think, started it, and it was a big. It was a, it was a big show. Big show. It, it, it rivaled ASCR, but in the regional area, right? And so what happened is, so we're I'm I'm there exhibiting with Claude and Dry East, and Cliff's there with Gary Lloydman. You know, I think was the first uh, instructor. You know, Gary was the first fun smoke instructor to Cliff. Like, I was the first dry instructor. Right, and I was the first industry trainer to Claude because the original trainers were, were Cliff and Claude, and then they passed, and then sure. that's how it went down. So what happened is the four of us decide we're going to have lunch one day. So you got Lottnick and Lloydman on one side, me and, me and Blackburn on the other. We're having lunch, and we're talking, and we're talking about the stuff that we think the two companies have in common. Now, what what Cliff and Claude didn't know at the time is a bunch of the other employees at Unsmoked and a bunch of the employees at Dry's 
were telling me and Gary respectively, he said, we're going to try to get Cliff and Claude together, you know, it makes sense that Dries and Unsmoke should merge and become one company, right? So that's when the actual first discussion took place. It was in 1990 or 1991 at this map show hmm. in Chicago, in the Midwest, uh, wherever was the location they used to have it. And we had a discussion. And so what we basically told these two guys, we said, well, we think you're going to get good support for both Dryes and Unsmoke to merge the company. But unfortunately, the only two guys who had a different viewpoint were the two owners, so it never happened there. <laughs> but, you know, several years later, it did. Okay. So I thought you had the vision for that. I thought that that was all. Well, I, I I actually had the original vision. Then I talked to the sales manager and people at Dry's and immediately I said yes. And then, you know, Lloydman and I don't know if Benary and Wiegan were there at the time, but basically what happened is they all started talking and everyone says, they says. And then the other thing is I think we started talking to John Don and some of the suppliers and, you know, they all handled both products and we all came in to do the training, right? And they were, the, they were both the leaders of the restoration area. And as I just started just casually asking around, they're going, yeah, it kind of makes sense. And then somebody said, somebody, I remember, it could have been one of the John and I guys. Somebody goes, but so how did that work? You know, Cliff and Claude, they have pretty different personalities. Like they said, yeah, well, that's the problem. We can't get the two of them Let's go. We're, we're kind of moving now along into the early years of the standards, all right? Yeah, so let me. What's going on? Is it all about, well, you tell me. Yeah. So what happened is, it, so in the late days, uh, there were all kinds of problems and issues going on in Southern California. Southern California, for many years, was referred to as the Wild West. Not not only because it was located on the West Coast, but in our industry, there was a lot going on there. And now I really actually think the Wild West, figuratively speaking, is really the state of Florida, which is a different discussion. Maybe we'll talk about later. But so what happened is there was a lot going on there as the industry as the industry was evolving. And um, so what happened during those days? There was some litigation and lawsuits in Southern California based on some flooding, some sewage backflows into apartment buildings, condos, and et cetera. And they were essentially construction defect-type uh, losses. But there had been industry companies who had cleaned them up. I don't want to, even though it's public record, I'd rather not mention the names, but they were, they were, they were national, national uh, you know, franchise networks, uh, corporate cleaning area mostly, not necessarily the restoration. And what had happened was they got embroiled in these lawsuits. Um, because the attorneys basically were suing builders, and there were all kinds of people involved. So some people in our industry got involved in these lawsuits. Well, what happened is when the lawsuits, and there was a, that was a, this was the beginning of the mold issues, but and sewage and all these related issues. What year are we looking at? Uh, late eighties. Late eighties. Okay. So what happened is during that time, what started to filter back to the industry, since it was a public health issue, and some of it kind of came through the EPA, kind of an informally is. These lawyers, there was no standard of care or best practice in the industry, so they, nobody knew how to litigate the case because they're saying, if you said a guy did something wrong, like he didn't clean it properly, he didn't dry it properly, they're saying, well, then, how, what was he supposed to do? Yeah. Right? It, was, it, was only, it was only anecdotal. How do we know what, right. how do we know what he's supposed to do? Right. So during that time, the, the, we were told informally that if your industry doesn't kind of get together and you don't, Create some standards. Says government's liable to do it for you, and you're really not going to like what the government does. At that point, the government kind of assisted, and they worked with a group of, you know, uh, people, leaders in the industry. And there was a paper that was published, like maybe 1990, and the paper was called "Remediation of Sewage Backflow into Buildings." And uh, Jeff Bishop, Gene Cole. Yeah, well, from the EPA, it was Gene Cole, it was Mike Berry, and um, 
uh, one other gentleman, sorry, I can't remember his name, from Restoration, it was Claude Blackburn with Jeff Bishop. I think Larry Cooper was involved. It was a fellow named Nathan Suazo from Southern California. He did a lot of pioneering work in sewage cleanup. And Steve Swan, who was dry sky for years, lived up in the Northwest. He's since passed. He was a pioneer, too. Anyway, they wrote this document of what was happening in it. Totally. Yeah, they had real strong RIA representation in that document. Yeah. And so, so, so what happened was um, I was actually asked at the time to participate in the document. And I felt it unnecessary for me to do it because I worked for Dries at the time. I said, you have caught in there, you don't need two of us. So I actually declined. Larry Cooper was heading it up and he actually asked me, said, no, Larry, you got caught, I don't need it. And you got Nathan and Steve, these are good guys, they know what they were doing. And they were all, it was West Coast group too. So what happened during that time, um, that document got published. That, what was in that document eventually was category three of water damage to this day. Okay. And but what was really powerful about it for many years in the nineties, it was published in nineteen ninety four in the Journal of Environmental Health, which you mentioned was scientifically peer reviewed. So in many ways that document in the early nineties actually had more impact and more credibility than the very first S five hundred, the first document, because the IHRC was no answer, it wasn't anything, but they're saying, Well you have a document that's scientifically peer reviewed. They're category three. Yep. But that was the beginning of then how we developed category one, category two a lot of the language for the must and the should and the recommend, how to recommend. That, 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 in other words, it was a, what that led to was the four to five year process to develop the first S500, which was published in 1994. And um, Cliff and myself were, uh, you know, we were on um, the final editing committee. We were part of uh, the final process. The final editing committee of the very first document was uh, Cliff actually represented ASCR. Claude was on there. I was there, Larry Cooper, Jeff Bishop. And Claudia Ramirez, who was the executive director of ASCR, but she actually just was there because she was Claudia. She had a lot of good skills. Yeah, Larry's and, brother was the attorney. And Larry, Larry, Larry's brother, who was, uh, had been a carpet cleaner, was an attorney. He was good. He did a good legal review. And I'll never forget, we had, we had, uh, we had a, a meeting where we did the, the final two-day legal review. One was in the lawyer's office, and then the second one was a final editing, which we moved to some hotel in the Denver area. And during that meeting, Cliff came with specific orders from ASCR of what ASCR wanted to support the document, and he actually represented their voice, not Claude, even though she was the director of the board, gave Cliff the director. So they got into, Cliff brought this battle about this FIFRA, the, uh, the Federal Insecticide Descendantite Act, which regulates pesticides and a lot of these uh, microbial products were used, which landed to the, the, the kind surf story of microbands several years later. And he was basically trying to say how important it was that the industry you know, understood that these products, the claims, they're regulated by the government, like he like Cliff shared a few minutes ago with right. his issues with microband and mildew, et cetera. And so at that particular time, he took a very strong stance on something, and he basically said if, 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 if the committee doesn't agree to this in the document, he goes, you know, ASCR is out of here, right? We're, we're, we're not supporting it. So what happens is, I guess he actually wore Larry down. Larry, ba we're close to lunchtime on day one. Larry basically says, okay, well, I come out of my chair. I said, what do you mean, okay, Larry? I said, is he, I, I said, because Claudia's sitting in the room. She's our director. I said, Cliff, do you have the authority to do the Well, the board gave me. I said, you can't hold a gun head to the committee. What? This is the law. They can't violate the law. telling me. So I'm going, well, I, you know, we got to have more of a discussion. So Larry, Larry's looking, we're arguing, right? So Larry says, look, why don't we break for lunch? He says, well, come back from lunch. He says, and he goes, 
we'll make Pete, they want to, Larry wants to make me the neutral moderator, and he was going to have this debated discussion between Claude and Cliff to talk about this product. And Larry makes his comment, he says, Pete, Pete's neutral. Zlotnick goes, he looks at me with a, with a look of contempt now. He goes, he's not neutral. And he goes, he, and then he starts, for two years, he started calling me better than consider, right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, anyway, so we go to lunch. Uh, Cliff doesn't come to lunch the first time. We come back from lunch. We're all back in the room, and Cliff, is, uh, Cliff comes in last. He kind of has his head down. And during that time, I, I, had, I happened to have a, a dryie hat. So I put this dryie hat on the table next to me. Cliff comes to sit down. Everyone's around the table. It's quiet. You can hear a pin drop. He's looking down. He doesn't see me. I say to him, Cliff, what makes you think I can't be, you know, impartial and be neutral? He looks up, sees the dryie hat. The whole place laughs. We sit down. We did our business. We got back, and we basically, you know, um, we came to agreement. That, and consensus is a contentious process. We came to agreement to lead the publication. Now, What's the lesson there? That, well, so here, here, right, go ahead, go ahead. here's the lesson. The lesson is consensus means that everyone has a chance to be heard and that, that you go through a process and then you have an agreement once everyone's been heard. Um, doesn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, the, the majority vote. I mean, there's all kinds of interpretations. But, but the important thing was is that it's confrontational, but it's confrontational because people take a position and they do it for the greater good because you fought, if you didn't have that dynamic, you probably didn't have, you know, all the different biases in the room to get, to get a, basically to get a good standard. So it's okay. In other words, it's not a bad thing as long as the intention is that we have rules of decorum, we have, we have uh, you know, we have a, a manner to, uh, to go through a due process, which obviously ANSI serves. We didn't have any of that at the time. And that we're respectful of each other's opinions. And then through agreement, we come to agreement. And, you know, it's as, as simple as that. But there, there is something that clipped. There was, there was a story there which, uh, which happened which, um, uh, about falling on the cutting room floor. And uh, before we move on to the next topic, you probably, you probably want to defer to the Z-Men on this one. So, right. Well, I think what happens is when people are passionate, you know, about an issue, and when you go through this process, which can be contentious, and you know, at certain points you win, there's certain that you lose, and so on and so forth. But you know, when you won one and it was hard fought, and everyone, you know, kind of agree, you know, you, you, you the majority of the people agreed, it's in the document. You're probably going to look at the document pretty closely when it comes out, and you'll notice if someone takes the liberty of removing it and your point ends up on the cunning room floor and it's not authorized by other people in the group. Okay. So. Okay. All right. Listen, I think it's a good time good time to break here. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good time for the break. All right. All right. Let's, we're, we're, what we're going to do here to the listeners, special show this week, two hours. We're going to take a short break here. We're going to thank our sponsors. We're going to play a little bit of music to uh, keep everybody going for about four minutes, and then we'll take a bio break. Right. Right. Bio break. We'll a little bio break, <laughs> and uh, so do you. We'll be back in about four minutes and thirty seconds with the second half of our interview with the Consigliere Pete Consigli and the Z-Man, my co-host. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology 
and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.